Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England episode 188, Richard III, Knave, Fool or Saviour. So this week I'm going to do my very best to put forward three different interpretations of the taking of the throne by Richard III. These are the three you vote for on the History of England Facebook page whereon I have posted today. The first interpretation is knave, the conspiracy theory, if you like. That Richard of Gloucester was an evil, scheming man who lusted for power and planned for power. And planned either before Edward IV died, but if not, certainly before the events at Stony Stratford. The second is fool, or the cock-up theory, if you like. This has it that Richard was a victim of circumstances of the situation who started out fully intending to see his nephews crowned, but by his actions and people's responses found himself compelled to seize the throne. A guy who did no more than you'd expect of the time. And the third is Saviour. This says that we should take Gloucester at face value, that he was faced with a situation where the success of the dynasty and security of the realm depended on him stepping forward to take the throne. On the principle that he who speaks last speaks loudest, I'm going to argue the saviour viewpoint last. I always thought that was an established phrase, by the way, but a quick Google search reveals that I may have coined it. I'm very proud. Before I start, one more thing. This is not a court of law, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. This is a court of public opinion. The point's been made many times that the evidence is circumstantial, especially with regards to the princes in the Tower, which, by the way, we'll cover separately, not in this debate. So what we're going to do is set the burden of proof lower. All we're asking is, on the balance of probabilities, in your opinion, what do you think's the most likely answer? Fool, knave, saviour. 
Now, for some reason, I've decided to take an adversarial approach and do a kind of speech for each interpretation. Not sure if it works, but hey, it's written, so the die is cast. So, I put it to you, ladies and gentlemen, that Richard of Gloucester, gentle listeners, was a knave. One of the things that gets said continuously, relentlessly, until you can feel your brain dribbling out of your ear, is that thing about Shakespeare and the evil, nasty, venal Tudors and their nasty propaganda having ruined our view of Richard forever and condemned a good man to the pits of historical despair, blackened his character beyond return. Well, I have to say, the thing is that sadly, the Tudors and their historians have got it pretty much right. OK, granted, so we put the physical appearance thing to one side as being made up, exaggerated and withal irrelevant to his character anyway. I strongly suspect that the reason the Shakespearean view of Richard has survived so well is not because history is written by the winners, not because Shakespeare wrote a really, really good play, but because the story simply has the ring of truth. So, having started with the meaningless insults, let me go back to the beginning and try to be a bit more professional. One of the aspects of the events of 1483 that make them so compelling and remarkable is the fact that everyone was so very surprised. No one expected Richard, of all people, to take the throne. He was seen as Mr Reliable, Mr Goody Two-Shoes, White Knight, Charger, Damsels in Distress, all that sort of thing. I've no doubt there'll be some bloke on soon bigging up the spotless Richard story. And of course there's plenty of evidence as to why this was the view at the time. Richard's courage and bravery was never in doubt. The contrast with the feckless Clarence and Richard's steadfast support for his big brother Edward, his relationship with the citizens of the North and York in particular, even the events in his short reign where Richard is credited with reforming innovations and turning down money offered by his new subjects for crying out loud, and that has to be a first for an impoverished king. but I think there's very clear evidence that even before Richard decided to claim the throne, there is plenty of evidence that he was a ruthless man prepared to break the law and step on the rights of others to fulfil his own ambitions. I'm going to start with Warwick the Kingmaker's wife, the Countess of Warwick. When Warwick was defeated, the lands that had come to him by his marriage to Anne Beecham, heiress of the Earl of Warwick, very clearly reverted to Anne and to another Neville called George. They were not due to Gloucester's wife, also Anne, because they were entailed in the male line. The rights of the situation were not in doubt, although it's Edward IV who pushed through the law to defraud the Countess, who was declared legally dead, slightly chilling phrase, and also defraud George Neville of their rights. But at any stage Richard could have stepped back. The whole stitch-up, the stitch-up it was, was something constructed by the three brothers together, squabbling over the spoils of the dead kingmaker, to take up what they saw as their God-given right to be the leading magnates in the country. While we're on the Countess of Warwick, apologists for Richard will say that he thoughtfully brought her into his own household. But bear in mind that the Countess had nowhere else to go, literally stripped of her livelihood, and that we get the barest glimpse of her until her death, and if the accounts are to be believed... She was accorded a stipend, a titchy tiny fraction of what hers would have been 
if she'd rightfully kept her lands. My point is that Gloucester had already demonstrated that where his interests were concerned, he was quite prepared to be ruthless, and the laws of the land were absolutely no impediment. And while we're on that, the stitch-up had a longer consequence. The Act of Parliament in 1475, which did the stitching, stipulated that the deal only worked while George Neville or his heirs were alive. If George died, Gloucester would then only have a life interest. That's a very odd provision, but it was to protect the other heirs. Anyway, if George had died, that would have been a disaster for Gloucester. Far from being Lord of the North, as Edward made him, Gloucester's family would have been also Rands. And hey, would you believe it? George Neville duly died on the 4th of May, 1483. Gloucester faced the ruin of his family, a situation that only a king could put right. Or indeed, being king. Nor was it the only occasion that Richard trampled over the rights of the land. In 1473, Richard and his servants bullied the 63-year-old Countess of Oxford into surrendering her lands to him. Interestingly, one witness said that Richard threatened to send her to Middleham to be kept there, along maybe with his unrivalled collection of helpless countesses. This is all about motivation, then. On the eve of Edward's death, Richard had created a dominant position in the north, though not unchallenged, it had to be said, given the rivalry of the Stanleys in the northwest but Edward had allowed him to become the most powerful magnate in all of England. Now the question Richard had to ask himself was would that continue under a new king? At this point we need to have the Woodville conversation. I could stand here and tell you that Gloucester hated the Woodvilles, that he blamed them for persuading Edward IV to kill his beloved brother Clarence, that, as Mancini said, he vowed revenge on all of them. But I think we can agree that there's precious little evidence of Woodville-Gloucester rivalry before 1483, and whether or not Gloucester did blame them for the death of Clarence is really unknowable. But what Richard will have known is of the political power of the Woodvilles in London and the Royal Council, so much so that Gloucester had basically checked out, rarely visited London, stayed in the north and just got on with it. As far as he was concerned, Edward would live for years, so his position was safe. Edward V was already 12, so would presumably achieve his majority under the eye of his father, and by the time any clog-popping went on in the king department, Richard would be well-established with his new king. Easy peasy, squeeze the lemon. But then, Edward died the fat fool, a young inexperienced minor would now take the throne, entirely under the influence of the Queen and her family, with no moderating influence of the King. So all of that was up for grabs. Land and wealth, political freedom in the North, family security, all could go. So I argue there's motivation for a coup, and also that Richard had previous. But maybe... Even more important than that, Richard had a deep and fervent determination that things should be done differently, that England had lost its way, that there needed to be a strong man to put all of this right. And furthermore, he had a deep and firmly held belief in his talents and abilities, and that therefore he was the man for the job, not some 
twelve-year-old boy dominated by a venal and morally bankrupt bunch of advisers. On the first part of this, Richard had come to despise the previous regime and not just the Woodville part of it. And he felt deeply that the country needed a new moral guide to take it away from the lechery, greed and indolence which Edward's councillors had allowed it to be dragged into. Because although he wouldn't have called it this, Richard had a puritanical streak in his nature. Although much of his piety looks reasonably conventional, he possessed a Bible in English which he'd autographed. In 1483, he forced Jane Shaw to walk barefoot through the streets of London. In 1484, he lectured the convocation of the church on their responsibilities. Quote, Our principal and inherent desire, he said, is to see virtue and cleanliness of living to be advanced. He accuses the Queen of witchcraft. As Simon Sharma said, quote, When Richard was killed at Bosworth Field, the country was saved from a Puritan martinet. Richard had stayed away from court precisely because the court that Edward and the Queen's family ran had become disgusting to him. And he ran the North as he thought a country should be governed. Now we know all this because that's what Richard tells us. The chronicler Mancini tells us that Richard impresses on the young king at Stony Stratford his, quote, profound grief at the death of the king's father, whose demise they imputed to his ministers. They were accounted the companions and servants of his vices and had ruined his health. He goes on to say that he himself could better discharge all the duties of government, not only because of his experience of affairs, but also on account of his popularity. More than telling the king, he tells the whole country. The titulus regis is the Act of Parliament passed in 1484, which formally legitimised Richard's accession. It contains the original petition to the Lords and Commons in 1483. Now that petition doesn't just go through the reasons why Edward V is illegitimate, it gives Richard's brother's regime an absolute pasting. It was a regime, he said, delighting in adulation and flattery, and led by sensuality and carnal lust. And that's just a flavour. He goes on a bit, let me tell you. Go and have a look on the History of England's website. It's all there. Now, Richard didn't need to diss his brother or the Woodvilles. The job here was to announce that he was the true heir. Nope, Richard was a man with a mission. Right from the start. Let me make a few points about what the events of 1483 tell us in terms of Richard's motivation. The historian Anthony Pollard makes the point that it is Richard who drives events right from the start. Right from the start and all the way through, he holds the initiative. It's he that seizes the Woodvilles at Stony Stratford. Once again, he blindsides any potential opposition with his coup on the 13th of June against Hastings, Morton and Rotherham. And yet, incidentally, as soon as he's done it, there's a polished proclamation ready to go right afterwards to reassure the people. And that looks like careful planning to me. On the 22nd of June, Ralph Shaw has been commissioned some time before to make his speech. Buckingham is prepared to again carry out a polished speech at the Guildhall the following day. It all suggests planning. 
Remember that the timeline between the coup and coronation is very tight, just three weeks. Throughout this, Richard showed a consistent and impressive ability to lie and to dissemble. Think of the hearty supper given to Rivers the very night before Richard imprisons him. The weapons in the carts as Richard came into London, claiming to be evidence of Woodville aggression when they were there, in fact, for a future Scottish campaign. And the deceit practised on Hastings to get him to the council tower. Even if you think he didn't plan it all, you have to admit he was quite capable of planning it all. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. His father had played by the rules, giving up the protectorship, and look where that got him. Humphrey of Gloucester had played by the rules, and look where that got him. Richard's brother Edward hadn't, and he had won the prize. The lessons of the Wars of the Roses appeared to be that ruthlessness won, and more, ruthlessness was required to win. Richard appeared to have learnt that particular lesson very well indeed, because a feature of the series of events is the unprecedented ruthlessness with which Richard acts. Hastings is executed without trial, and Rivers, Vaughan and Grey are executed without trial too. And again, Gloucester shows a willingness to dispense with the laws of the land whenever he feels the need. And the princes are dispensed with. This debate doesn't cover who killed the princes, but it's a bit irrelevant in a way. Again, Antony Pollard puts it best when he wrote. He deposed a boy of twelve, his nephew, who on his own insistence had been placed in his trust. Edward V was not of an age to have caused personal political offence. He could not be accused of tyranny like Richard II or gross incompetence like Henry VI. The usurpation of 1483 was of a fundamentally different order to those of 1399, 1461 or even 1485. In 1483, uniquely, deposition was used as a weapon of first resort. Bravo, Antony. The other blokes making these arguments later in this podcast will make great play of the supposed illegitimacy of Edward IV's offspring. But even if true, there were surely other routes that Richard could have taken. After all, the Tudor claim was based on descent from legitimised bastards, the Beauforts. He could have told Bishop Stillington to keep stum, as he'd done already for many years. He could have had Parliament legitimise them. That he did not speaks volumes for Richard's ambition. I'm going to finish by appealing to contemporary opinion. Let's put aside the Moors and Virgils and Rouses of this world, given that they're accused by Richard's supporters of unreasonable bias. Mancini at very least believe Richard to be a schemer and guilty of, quote, an insane lust for power. He pours scorn on the announcement of Edward V's illegitimacy, describing it as in the face of all decency and religion. Crowland also pours scorn on the event. Quote, there was not a person but what knew very well who was the sole mover at London of such seditious and disgraceful proceedings. In summary, the Tudors without doubt worked as hard as they could to rubbish Richard and destroy his reputation. But they had excellent material to work with. Let me give Dominic Mancini again the last word. Richard, he wrote, was a man who destroyed Edward's children and then claimed for himself the throne. 
I think Richard planned it from Middleham, or at very least Northampton on the 29th of April. His self-belief, his feeling of vulnerability, his ruthlessness and his disregard for the law all point to a man on a mission to rule. Let's hear the argument then from our second argumentative and adversarial type. To argue that Richard might be guilty of a usurpation, but he was driven by factors outside his control, driven by the situation. And in the end, he did what he did because he was driven by a need to survive. So, Richard is a fool. I vaguely remember a story of a man walking down a lane behind another person, seeing that person slip and fall and think to themselves, oh, what a clumsy bloke. On reaching the same point in the lane, the man himself falls over and he realises that he's been confusing the qualities of the person ahead with the situation that they'd found themselves in. The same applies to Richard of Gloucester and the events of 1483. Conspiracy theories are immensely attractive, but I'd contend that more often than not we overemphasise the ability of people to control and drive and understand events. The last guy started with an unfriendly appraisal of Gloucester's character. Without doubt the land grabs Edward orchestrated went against the law of the land, but let's be clear these are Edward's actions, not those of Gloucester and they need to be laid at Edward's door. The struggle for land and family are hardly unique to Gloucester. It's an enduring feature of the Middle Ages, and seems unfair to judge a man by standards other than those of his time. There's also plenty of evidence that speaks of Gloucester's high standards, his probity and reputation. Even the most negative observer recognised his courage and unswerving loyalty to Edward IV, I'll give you a few quotes, firstly from Dominic Mancini, who despite his hostile interpretation of Richard's actions, at least recognised his good reputation. The good reputation of his private life and public activities powerfully attracted the esteem of strangers. Such was his renown in warfare that whenever a difficult and dangerous policy had to be undertaken, it would be entrusted to his discretion and his generalship. And by no means all of the positive comments came only before 1483. There's a letter in the summer of 1483 after Richard's coronation. Thomas Langdon, the Bishop of St David's, wrote to a friend about the new King Richard. He contents the people where he goes best that ever did prince. For many a poor man that hath suffered wrong many days have been relieved and helped by him and his commands in his progress. And in many cities and towns were great sums of money given him which he hath refused, by my troth. I never liked the condition of any prince so well as his. God hath sent him to us for the weal of us all. And I'll give you another example from Richard's own hand. After Jane Shaw had been made to trawl through London, the king's solicitor, Thomas Lynham, wanted to marry her. There's a letter surviving from Richard. He expressed his disapproval about the idea without doubt. But actually the tone of the letter is kindly. He essentially says, look, I hate the idea. Talk to this guy, Thomas. But if Thomas's mind is made up, fine. I won't stand in his way. He can go ahead with my blessing. It fits very well with another feature of Richard, 
which was frequently remarked on, his loyalty to his friends. His motto, loyalty binds me, might sound like a sick joke to Edward V, but there's plenty of evidence and attractive examples of his loyalty to many of his friends in the North, not just to his powerful brother. He remembered loyalty and kindnesses and rewarded them. The point of all of this is that surely we have to judge Richard in the context of what he has showed us of his character. And that character speaks of a love of loyalty, justice and fairness. Which, of course, therefore begs the question, how then could the man be guilty of apparently the most hideous disloyalty to his brother's wife and children? How to reconcile these two things? The character of Richard of Gloucester is very critical in interpreting his actions, while, of course, being the very hardest thing to do at this distance of time. But most of the conflicts are explicable in the context of a man of his time driven by events to make extraordinary decisions, which forced him into a path not of his making or of his planning. My point is that Richard was bequeathed a situation by Edward that he could not ignore and that he had to deal with, in all honesty. That he therefore rushed into a decision at Stony Stratford to lay this before the new king and get the young king on his side, that the consequences of that decision he took couldn't be dispelled and worked through, and in the end would lead to the ultimate call for him to depose the princes. But deposition was no way his intention at the start. So let's start with my contention that Edward left an impossible political situation. V.B. Lamb quotes Thomas Habington, a 16th century historian, and the quote hits the mark exactly. He's describing Edward IV's court. The outward face of the court was full of the beauty of delight and majesty, while inward all was rotten with discord and envy. Edward's attempt to reconcile Hastings and the Woodvilles, the faction-riven council on Edward's death, are both consequences of a rule that allowed these factions to grow, contained only by Edward's existence and personality. It's all very well for us to recognise that there's no evidence of Gloucester's rivalry with the Woodvilles before 1483. But that's not to say that take Edward away, there wasn't then a serious problem. In fact, what happened before 1483 in that regard is irrelevant. There's no rivalry when Edward was there to manage it. As the previous bloke said, Richard was content with his position in the north. Edward made Hastings and the Woodvilles just get on. But remove Edward and you have a completely different and highly volatile situation. Richard's position was now threatened by a regency dominated by the Woodvilles. One historian argues that the ease with which Richard dispatched the Woodvilles is evidence that they weren't really a threat, and Richard hadn't needed to react as violently as he did. Now that's an example of the kind of 2020 hindsight with which Richard is saddled. Hastings clearly felt they were a very clear and present danger. The first council meeting clearly demonstrated how hard Hastings had had to fight for the smallest of concessions. Dorset's famous line, We are so important that even without the king's uncle we can make and enforce these decisions, was as clear a demonstration as you could wish for that Richard of Gloucester and Hastings did indeed have something to worry about. Even if they turned out to be paper tigers, Richard and Hastings wouldn't have been able to rely on that in April 1483. So, my point again, Richard faced an impossible situation he had to tackle to survive. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. More than that, as the previous bloke has argued, Richard was convinced that he was the man for the job. I agree that he was more than a normally pious man who hated the licentiousness of Edward's court. I agree that he felt strongly that only he could put the kingdom back together again, back on the right moral track. So the decision of that first council were critical to everything that followed. The decision the council made to crown the king, to have a regency council, may have been perfectly reasonable constitutionally but they came as a declaration of war, as far as Gloucester was concerned. Now there would be no all-powerful protector. And yes, that struck at Gloucester's very survival. A Regency Council could strip him of many of the offices granted him by the Crown, and he'd always be outnumbered by the Woodvilles. The vulnerability of his landholding has been well covered. But the other point is that it also offended his sense of what was right, The Woodvilles, and indeed Hastings, were an integral part of what he wanted to put right about the kingdom. So we're not just talking about self-interested survival, we're talking about a desire to put things right. So, from the start, Gloucester had been clear about what he wanted to the council, about his right to be the protector. And his letter to the council, though, is measured and loyal. He then behaves with complete probity. He came south with just 500 men. We know that Rivers and Edward had 2,000. If Gloucester had been planning a usurpation from the beginning, he'd have brought many more people. This is the action of a man who thinks he can win his case by putting it before the king. So then at Stony Stratford, Gloucester seized Rivers and Grey and then made his pitch to the king. Incidentally, Paul Kendall argued that Buckingham talked Gloucester round after supper with Rivers and that therefore it's a very impulsive thing that Gloucester does. But whether or not it's true, filled with a sense of purpose and what was right, Gloucester makes his pitch to the young king. The king's negative response was disastrous. His complete rejection immediately meant Gloucester had very few options. Because it meant that Richard might have weeks only before he was buried by the king and the Woodvilles. Once Edward was crowned, a regency council could be set up and the protectorship ended. Gloucester would then be faced not just by the hostile Woodvilles, but a king who'd seen his favourite mentors, Rivers, thrown into jail. As soon as he was crowned, he'd have Gloucester's ears, or an even more tender part of his anatomy. Gloucester had gambled that his self-evident reputation and competence would convince the king. He'd gambled, and he'd failed. And suddenly he realised he was looking at a busted flush. Dominic Mancini used an interesting phrase when describing Gloucester's actions in 1483. He wrote, Therefore the protector rushed headlong into crime. It's a phrase that stresses impulsiveness. 
That's what we see throughout 1483, impulsive reactions to events, not a carefully planned campaign. If he'd thought it through, Gloucester would have realised what a difficult situation his action at Stony Stratford would put him in. Nonetheless, although Gloucester asserts his rights when he reaches London and the Woodvilles flee to sanctuary the big babies, there's no sign of a usurpation. What would you do if you were going to usurp the throne? I'd build up a bunch of support, particularly in the big hairy blokes in chainmail department. But there's none of that. Business is carried on as normal in the name of Edward V. There was one really, really significant event, though. The lords and magnates that happily make Gloucester Lord Protector with full authority refuse to countenance the execution of rivers. This is another disaster. Number two, the clock is now ticking. Hastings has promised that they will be given a fair trial. And that means that not only the king is on Gloucester's case, but Gloucester faces the very real possibility of the Woodville's resurgent, coming back out of the woodwork, released into the wild, looking for revenge. But there's no evidence that Gloucester is preparing for anything at all. And then suddenly everything changed on the 10th of June. Suddenly Gloucester sends panicky letters north to York and to Ralph Neville, asking for men and support. He sends his man Ratcliffe north with orders to execute Rivers. Firstly, this reinforces my previous point. Why hasn't he sent for more men before now if he was planning a usurpation? If you're planning a usurpation, why wait? Something had changed. And Richard's reaction, again, was a panic. What had changed could be a number of things. It could be that Gloucester realised that Edward V would not come round to his point of view and he needed to do something. It could be that Robert Stillington did indeed visit him to tell him that Edward is illegitimate. Or the traditional explanation is that Richard discovered a plot by Hastings. I think the Hastings thing is interesting. Some commentators I read got quite weepy about Hastings and the injustice of his death without trial. Well look, first up, others might have had a trial in theory, but how many times have we seen something that was nothing but show? with the defendant not even able to speak in their own defence. But also why are we seeing Hastings as an innocent victim here? Hastings has been at the centre of power for decades and stayed there. He made the most of his position to gather riches and power. It is he that, to a degree, sparks this crisis off. His letters to Richard clearly inflame the situation. And he was equally clearly using Richard to defend his own position. He's a player. He played with fire and he got burned. So it could be that there was indeed a plot between Hastings, Morton and Rotherham. Personally, I think a Woodville-Hastings alliance unlikely, but the concept of a Hastings and Morton cooking up something between them is entirely believable. And in fact, it doesn't need to be true. All that is needed is for Richard to believe that it's true. Which is what Buckingham or Catesby probably relay to him. Equally, it could just be that Richard realised that Hastings' support only goes so far and they're not even as far as executing Rivers. So Richard panicked, sent for men, laid a trap. This could well, therefore, be the moment when Richard realises that he has to go all the way. The evidence is mounting that without seizing the throne, he's toast. He's going to be taking an early bath. The lords and magnates have already shown him that they will not allow him to execute rivers. 
Hastings' support is limited. The new king is after his ears. There is one route left open to him and one route only. One final point. We do not and will never know who actually killed the princes in the tower, so let's take that out of the equation. If the story was the princes who were kept in the tower all their lives, a lot of historians and their publishers would have made a lot less money. If Gloucester had usurped the throne like Henry IV or Edward IV or, and locked the prince up in the same way that Henry VII keeps the young Earl of Warwick locked up, Gloucester's actions might be criticised but surely would not be out of line with all the many other injustices in the name of power and the security of the state. Richard may have been right that he was the best man for the job and this was no time for a minor on the throne. Ecclesiastes 10.16 Woe to you, O land, whose child is a king! In the words of Woody in Toy Story, this was the perfect time to panic. And then finally, finally, let me go back to the cock-up theory of history. To believe that Richard planned it all is to attribute to him a power of planning and critical path analysis that would make him the most worthy of rulers, an almost omniscient level of perception that would make the most appropriate response to burn him at the stake for witchcraft. Nope. Gloucester found himself in a situation, in a body politic which was rotten, where the most powerful faction at a court he despised and didn't understand had declared war against him, where his best result was to hold the hounds baying for his blood off his neck for at most three years and possibly weeks. And there he was, brain the size of a large orbital satellite, perfect for the job. At every stage he sought to find a solution and only at the last gasp did he do what had been happening all around him for all his life. Take the prize. Richard was seriously no more than a man of his time and committed no more crime than any other. Last and not least, Richard Gloucester, saviour of the kingdom. So, not quite sure why I get the graveyard slot when you're all exhausted, just want to condemn the guy and get home for supper, maybe a bit of slap and tickle over the nine o'clock news, but listen up, because Gloucester is a man badly wronged. I simply cannot remember where I heard this, but I was told a story about Wittgenstein hanging out with his chumps one day, and his chumps mocking the stupid medieval dudes who thought the sun went round the earth, rather than the earth going round the sun. Well, said Ludwig, what would it have looked like if the sun was going round the earth? It would, of course, have looked completely the same. My point is, ladies and gents, that it's all about perspective, all about the way you look at the facts. At all points, Richard of Gloucester told us why he was doing what he was doing. What would the story have looked like if he was, in fact, telling the truth? Strip away all the cynicism, all the propaganda, all the what-ifs and what-maybes, and actually you have a pretty straightforward story, and a story that reconciles the man we thought Gloucester to be with the man who made himself Richard III. So first off, I'm not going to repeat much of the drivel you've just heard by those other guys, but let's set some ground rules. We can agree that Gloucester is a man with a powerful reputation on April the 8th, 1483. We can agree that he's a pious man, and unusually so. We can agree that he has some vulnerabilities in his landholding position, though it's well worth noting that he knew nothing of George Neville's death at Stony Stratford since George didn't die until the 4th of May. Just a couple of things to refute from the first guy initially. Bear in mind that unlike either Clarence or Edward IV, Richard had the sensitivity to understand that the Countess of Warwick did need help. 
It's not unusual for even very grand women to leave very little historical record. Accusing Gloucester of locking the Countess up is simply wild speculation. All we really know is that Gloucester offers her a place to live and she accepts. And remember that Gloucester also rescued his wife from Clarence's clutches. There's no evidence that Anne Neville and Richard were anything other than loving husband and wife who weep together with despair at the death of their only son. Gloucester's whole history speaks of a family man, not a cold-blooded murderer. I'm going to talk a bit about the bias of the sources. I realise every blessed book on Richard III has to warble on about it, and it's tiresome. But the point needs to be made. Every single source we have about Richard has an inbuilt bias against him. Virgil and Moore, fine men though they were, were writing in the time of Henry VII. Virgil commissioned by him, and Moore getting his main line of information from his mentor John Morton. John Morton who was deeply, deeply hostile to Richard. Everything after Shakespeare really has to deal with that villain in Shakespeare. Even the contemporary chronicles suffer from knowing what happened, so even Crowland and Mancini, the two best, have to be read with that in mind. Actually, while I'm on the subject, there's a brilliant website by a really good-looking bloke called David Crowther, thehistoryofengland.com, where you can read these sources for yourself. So I suggest both Goose and Gander go and visit. So look, just saying, don't believe everything you read. So first thing, let's also be clear that when Edward IV died, the vast majority of people would have felt that Richard was the right man for the job of protector, the right man to lead the government. Every judgment we make about Richard has to be in the context of the time. Context is everything in history. We are not here, gentle listeners, to judge Richard or his peers as though they were sitting in the 21st century. There's plenty of evidence in the sources for his support from the people. When Richard sends his letter after Stony Stratford, the people agree that on reflection, despite the incredibly dramatic and unexpected news, he's done the right thing. Fair dues. Tick. And at the same time, it becomes absolutely clear that London in particular agrees with Richard that his judgment of the Woodvilles is absolutely on the proverbial money. It's impossible to ignore the consistent message from the last 20 years of history that the Woodvilles are disliked as parvenus. Put aside the 20th century love of an aspirational rising middle class and everything as dull, slightly pretentious Volvo-driving middle class folk have done for the world, back then, the view was you should know your station and the Woodvilles had clearly got above it. So although people needed reassuring, the whole chain of events from Stony Stratford to Gloucester and Edward V's arrival in London was actually seen as pretty reasonable. Here's Mancini. But when they, the Woodvilles that is, had exhorted certain nobles to take up arms, they perceived that men's minds were not only irresolute, but altogether hostile to themselves. Some even said openly that it was more just and profitable that the youthful sovereign should be with his paternal uncle. So, to summarise so far, Richard's character, we all seem to agree, was a pious man, possibly slightly puritanical even, strong sense of self-belief and belief in his position and responsibilities in life. The Woodwills were deeply unpopular and London essentially saw the justice of what Richard had done at Stony Stratford. So Richard's done nothing wrong yet. There is no reason why Richard should have simply submitted to Woodville dominance and done what he was told to do by the council. He has his right. 
and men as powerful as Hastings clearly totally agreed. The Crowland Chronicle makes it crystal clear that at this stage, Hastings is cock-a-hoop. No idea why cock-a-hoop is a happy thing, but apparently it is. Everything Richard then does over the next couple of months is absolutely in line with what you would expect of a powerful but loving uncle out to support the rights of his nephew. He brought a limited number of men down to London, just 500, as opposed to the 2,000 rivers had been allowed. In London, he makes sure he and everyone else pledges their allegiance to the king. He takes his case to the lords and magnates sitting in council and gets his position as protector approved and agreed. He accepts the knockbacks along the way, for example, not being able to send rivers to meet his maker. His reorganisation of government reflects a moderate, considered change that replaces some people but stresses continuity with Edward IV's household men. There is no coup d'etat, there's no wholesale replacing of people to support a coup in the future. The business of government continues in Edward V's name. Now then, all this changes in June, as we know. On the 10th, Richard panicked and sent letters north for extra support and men from York and Ralph Neville. On the 13th of June, Hastings was removed and executed by Richard. The king's attendants were withdrawn from him in the tower. On the 22nd of June, a preacher announced the illegitimacy of the king and by the 25th, the meeting of the Lords and Commons has offered the crown to Richard. This, in the words of the two previous speakers, is the usurpation. Whether it's rushed into or not, whether acceptable in the context of the time, it's a usurpation. Well, according to the Lords and Commons of Parliament, it's nothing of the sort. According to the Lords and Commons of England, it's the rightful assumption of the throne by the rightful heir. The explanation Richard gave for the events of the 13th of June were that he had uncovered a plot. I agree with the previous speaker. Why on earth has history been so kind to William Hastings? It's true, he's liked. It seems very much that he is loyal to Edward V, and that's laudable in one sense. But in no way was he an innocent. As for John Morton, we'll wait until Henry VII's reign and Morton's fork. John Morton is Henry the Tyrant's pitiless enforcer, screwing every ounce of cash from the people for his master. Morton has been on the run, enjoyed power in the church, secular power at the very top, a man perfectly capable of plotting to remove Richard. Why would they plot? It could indeed be that they were worried, rightly or wrongly, about Richard's intentions towards Edward. It could be that they did not like the new supremacy of Buckingham, or indeed the very wide powers that Richard enjoyed. There's little evidence to support the case for a plot. We know that Hastings, Morton and Rotherham had been meeting together, and that Gloucester had suddenly panicked and sent for more men. More than that, we don't know. But I don't find it difficult to believe that men like Hastings and Morton would put something together. And Richard's reaction is entirely in keeping with a man whose motto was loyalty binds me. He'd been betrayed as far as he was concerned by Hastings, who he'd trusted. The other major incident is, of course, the big one, the revelation of Edward IV's bigamy. The news doesn't appear to have been out by the 16th when Sanctuary was surrounded by agreement with the council and the Duke of York was retrieved from his mother. Although Philip de Comines claimed that Stillington told Gloucester on the 9th, it looks as though it must be later than that. Now, the anti-Richard story here is that the discovery of the bigamy is just way too convenient. And why on earth would it come up now, so conveniently, just at this time? 
and the same cynicism appears to have run round London at the same time too, if the chroniclers are to be believed. But that's hardly surprising. It was an extraordinary event. The Woodville faction would have been poo-pooing for England. But ask yourself, if true, when else would such a piece of information have come to light? It wasn't going to happen under Edward IV's reign, was it now? In fact, when else would you expect such news to come out at all? Just before a nation crowns a new king, it sounds like pretty much the perfect time to mention that actually there might be a problem. Whether or not you approve of Bishop Stillington's decision to fess up is an entirely different matter. The point is that Richard would have had to deal with the fact that he had. That being the case, what else could Richard do than what he did? He put the matter before Parliament. Note, by the way, that all those extra men that he'd asked for from York are nowhere near to arriving yet, so it's not as though London is surrounded by Gloucester and Buckingham's men. Parliament has proved perfectly capable of pushing back before, as it did with Rivers. My point is that Richard did the only thing he could do. He took the matter to Parliament. Also ask yourself, if the timing was inconvenient, was the revelation itself actually that surprising? We know very well that Edward IV was infamous for his sexual exploits. This liaison to trick Eleanor Butler into bed Sounds absolutely in character. The previous speaker suggested that they could have taken some other courses of action. They could have buried the news, or have had it reversed by an Act of Parliament. Both of these ignore two things. Firstly, we've all agreed that Richard was an unusually pious man. Edward had broken the laws of the Church. How was an honourable religious man supposed to bury that? And secondly, why open the dynasty of York open to such charges of illegitimacy? if a perfectly legitimate heir was available. Now, I'm not arguing that Richard didn't want this to be true. I'm not suggesting that Richard didn't want the job of a king. But I am saying he acted with perfect probity at each stage. Stillington would presumably have been at the Parliament meeting on the 25th of June and open to being quizzed. So, in fact, when Richard was offered the crown by the Lords and the Commons on the 25th of June, Richard can claim to be the most democratically chosen English king to date. So, to sum up then, all that's required to absolve Richard of usurpation is to put aside the layers and centuries of prejudice. The conflict of understanding the difference between the Richard of pre-1483 and the Richard of 1483 has amazed and confused people. Why? They are the same people. Richard acts exactly as you would expect in 1483. He is firm, decisive, self-confident, a strong believer in his own rights and status, ambitious, godly, loyal and concerned with consulting his great men. If you don't assume that Richard was out to defraud the young king, it all drops into place. So there we go, the arguments as well as I can put them. Your task now, ladies and gents, is to go to the History of England Facebook page to vote. It's the page, not the group. It has a picture of a grey heron. If you can't find it, go to the History of England website and there's a link there. Now, on the Facebook page, you will see the post I've pinned to the top, which is where you put your comment and vote. Remember two things that you have to do. Number one, like the History of England page. Number two, add a comment with your vote, knave, fool or saviour and add any other thoughts and comments into the comment box that you might want to share.
Don't forget all the extra material at the website, thehistoryofengland.com. You can see who the major players were, read the original chronicles, check the timeline, all that sort of stuff before you place your all-important vote, and you have until July the 29th to place that vote. And, of course, there is the prize draw. Everyone who likes the Facebook page and votes gets entered for the draw for an original Edward IV halfpenny and a replica Richard III gold angel, with two consolation prizes, too, of some original medieval cut coins. How cool is that on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being very cool and 1 being, well, not cool at all, so hot. Mm. I ask one more favour. Please share the post at the Facebook page. Tell the world out there just what a nerd you really are. If they work hard, they could be every bit as nerdy. One final point. Why exclude the printers in the tower question? The approach I'm taking is that we know that we don't know for sure who killed them. So it's one variable we can take out of the debate about the usurpation. And we'll come to it, never fear. Many thanks to all you donators, to regulars Ian, Amy, William, Richard, Simon, Alan, Henry, Ross, Linda, Russell, Mary and Oak. And donators this month, James, Lawrence, Lisa, John, Anthony, Mike and Jürgen. Which only leaves it for me, ladies and gentlemen, to thank you all for your kind attention. Good luck in your deliberations and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 